Hello, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm your host, Jake Lancaster, along with Henry Sullivan. And today we'll be talking to Dave Smalley about updates to lab testing for COVID-19. Before we get started, though, I wanted to remind all of the physicians and providers that are listening to the podcast episode that if you go to the show notes on the podcast, uh, you can find a link to the CME survey so you can redeem CME credit. Um, we've only had a small percentage of providers so far redeem CME credit, so I wanted to encourage you to, to do so. Dr. Smalley, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Can you tell the audience just a, a little bit about uh, yourself and, and what you currently do? Sure. Uh, I'm Dave Smalley. I'm the president of American Esoteric Laboratories, AEL. As you know, we're the uh, principal reference laboratory for the Baptist system. Uh, I'm, as president, I've been here for about eight years now. And prior to that, I was the director of the state public health laboratory system for Tennessee. And prior to that, I was over the uh, clinical operations here at AEL and at the same time was a professor of pathology at the University of Tennessee. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and giving us an update on COVID-19. Lab testing has been, it's been, it's been evolving so much over the last year, and I'm, I'm glad the audience will get to hear some updates. Uh, Henry, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I do, Dave. And really, Jake and I appreciate you coming on. And what a journey, Dave. I think it was about a year ago this time when we were being introduced to this novel coronavirus. And can you describe to, to the audience, to Jake and me, where we started at the beginning of the pandemic with regards to testing and perhaps some of the high points and, and then where we are today in your estimation? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Dr. Sullivan, uh, a year ago when we were talking about this, uh, it, it was uh, a, a total uh, a different world. Uh, the ironic thing is, is that uh, we, we were following the, the outbreaks, the activities in, in the late part of, of 2019. Uh, I, I think we had several conference calls about, you know, where is this going here in the United States? Um, and I think uh, it was around this first week in March that we actually picked up our first case that uh, came through the Baptist system. Uh, uh, thank goodness we were uh, actually in a pretty good position. We had two different platforms that we could do testing. One was the uh, Illumina system, which uh, we, we began uh, so that we could do some initial and then we also had a COBOS uh, 8800 on board that uh, as soon as the FDA approved that, we were able to move to it. I, I can tell you that uh, in March, uh, the first week in March, I, I told some of my staff here that if, if uh, I thought we would really be doing well if we ended up testing 10,000 patients and uh and we're able to effectively do the the testing and, and do turnaround time uh needless to I to say uh, i never dreamed at that point in time that we would do it be doing as many as forty thousand patients a week uh so initially a handful of patients uh rapidly grew to several thousand patients uh, today, uh, we're in a very, very uh, good position for testing for the Mid-South. Uh, basically, we have two COBOS 8800s. We have uh, five quant studios. 
Uh, so our capabilities here within the Memphis area are over 12,000 tests per day. Uh, the technologies that we're using are, are the most modern, most effective, and uh, we feel that uh, this transition over the past 11 months has just been a, a, a total uh, unbelievable uh, chain of events. Dave, you know, early on, our, our, our problem with the turnaround time on the test um, led to a lot of concerns about uh, PPE use. And at that time, we, we, we didn't have a great supply chain for PPE. And can you tell me, help me remember, what was our turnaround time for a PCR test about 12 months ago? Well, when we first started, uh, again, we were in fairly good shape. We, we were uh, typically hitting between one and three days. Uh, with a majority within the first uh, 24 to 48 hours. However, uh, as you mentioned, the changes in supply lines really hit in, in the first part of, of uh, July. Uh, at that point in time, we had supply capabilities of doing over six to 7,000 tests per, per day. And almost overnight, uh, our supply line was cut to 4,000 per day. That caused a, a significant backup in, in our testing capabilities, uh, particularly when we were getting uh, more than eight to ten thousand tests per day, and, uh, and the ability was only four thousand in turnaround. One of the things that we learned from that is uh, how do we prepare more effectively, and so what we've done at this point uh, is we maintain our stock levels here for for testing supplies. We typically have two to three weeks capability on site, plus uh, being part of Sonic Healthcare, uh, we've actually set up a, a warehouse in, in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area where we have another uh, two to four weeks of supplies. So uh, today we're in much better shape than we were, particularly at, at this past July. So Dave, that represents a substantial change in the way that most most all of the people really on the manufacturing end think about just-in-time supplies. Uh, you, you've had to do, you've gone back in your thinking back 20 or 30 years with having to stockpile supplies. Uh, any comments there or thoughts there? How does that affect your, how does that affect your, your reagent supply, your cost, et cetera? That to me is a, is a big, big manufacturing change. It, it definitely is. I, I mean, the, the amount of stock that we have to have on, on hand uh, is is significantly larger than we would have ever expected. And and uh, you know, one of the things that we've had to do is continually look at at the surges that occur, anticipate what may be needed in the, in the near future, and so forth. And and sometimes it's a guess. Uh, you know, obviously, we knew after Thanksgiving there was going to be a surge. After Christmas, there was going to be a surge. Uh, uh, we've constantly been looking forward to the vaccine coming on play. And, and so would you say, can you comment on just, I guess, the, the state of the supplies as far as reagents go, as far as the national scale? Because I know back in the summer, we had a national shortage of reagent. Has has that been overcome, or we or is that still a concern moving in the future? Well, at, at this point in time, I think we're in pretty good shape. Many of the manufacturers geared up, uh, and again, part of the problem was trying to to hit tests that 
that we would have anticipated being in the hundreds, being in the thousands or ten thousands. And uh, a number of the companies that, that we deal with have added additional manufacturing capabilities. And uh, so at this point in time, we actually are in, in really good shape. Uh, uh, there are some companies that, that make uh, small numbers of tests that have continued to plague, particularly hospitals, for some of the rapid testing. But uh, from the overall process that we're doing, we, we are really in good shape. Can you comment? We're talking about COVID-19 tests, um, but are we talking about PCR tests, antigen tests, or both? We're doing the PCR testing here. Uh, uh, we've looked at the antigen test. Again, uh, there's some restrictions on the antigen capability. Uh, uh, basically, the FDA has looked at this. They stated that antigen tests should be used for symptomatic patients. And uh, the level of sensitivity is substantially low. So uh, under the FDA guidance, if in fact you have a patient that is symptomatic and their antigen test negative, uh, they should have a PCR done. Uh, there have been some false positive, false negative with antigens, so we've actually stayed away from that and stayed with the PCR type technology. We also have antibody testing, and I will tell you that uh, with the antibodies, uh, we have been testing for uh, total antibodies of IgG, IgA, IgM for nuclear capsid protein from the from the coronavirus. Uh, we are are within a few days of having the spike protein antibody, which is actually the, the target for the, the various vaccines. Dave, let, let me go back and ask you a question then uh, about supplies and a follow-up to Jake's, to Jake's question is, it, it looks like one of President Biden, President like Biden's initiative is going to be broader testing and wants to push hard on that. Does that give you any concerns about your supply as we start looking at testing more broadly, asymptomatic as well as asymptomatic patients? Not to mention what the airlines are planning on doing with international travel. Well, uh, ironically, we, we've anticipated a lot of that type of thing. Uh, several of our laboratories are in fact uh, working with international travel. Uh, one of our sister laboratories in, in Hawaii uh, does a lot of testing uh, across uh, the Pacific. And uh, so, you know, we've anticipated this, so we have capabilities of doing that. And our turnaround times at this point in time are exceptionally good. I, I think uh, we're well within 90% of uh, a 24-hour turnaround time and 100% within 48. Uh, we've expanded the capability to include uh, two different methods, the Roche system as well as, as the Thermal Fisher TAC path. So between that, having the capability of 12,000 tests per day, uh, I, I think we're, we're prepared if necessary. So, you know, since we started in the beginning of the pandemic, most of the patients that are used to getting tested have uh, been used to the, the brain biopsy, that nasopharyngeal swab. But, uh, you know, several articles have come out in support of just, uh, you know, the nerynx or, or just doing saliva or uh, oral pharyngeal. Can you comment on, on the different methods of testing types and, and what does your lab, I guess, prefer uh, as far as, as this testing goes? Does it matter? 
Yeah, I, initially uh, the CDC recommendation was the nasopharyngeal swabs, and and there were a lot of people that were resistant to that, and, and I, I think one of our colleagues made a comment that if you had an MP swab done correctly that and you liked the person uh, after they did it, then most likely they didn't do it correctly. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 that was very uncomfortable. Uh, uh, they moved to the mid-terminate, uh, and now we know that we can do a, a nas anterior nasal. So basically being able to go up to the, to, to the bridge of the nose and, and maintaining the swab through that direction. So that, that has improved the capabilities of, of people uh, doing the testing as well as acceptability. And we've looked at alternatives also. Uh, I don't know if you can see this. This is, this is a, uh, a saliva collection device. And what this, we've actually validated this, and this is FDA approved. And what this does is you can see this is a little cup right here. A uh, person can, can put their saliva in here, it drains down into this tube. This has a uh, cap to it that uh, this funnel is taken off. This actually fits on the top of it, and then this blue material can actually drain down in there and, and, and preserve the RNA. And so we have those available. It's something that uh, FDA approved actually for home collection kits. So there's some options where people can't get out that we could actually send those kits uh, for collection of saliva. Uh, we just finished out, ironically, uh, yesterday uh, looking at, at buccal washings, and uh, we took a series of patients, did uh, uh, distilled water uh, buccal washings, uh, which is swishing along the cheek and so forth. and. Uh, uh, the buccal washings actually do very, very well. So again, it gives us more options. So we've looked at all these different processes of saliva, uh, buccal washings, uh, various types of nasal collections, and and most of those work, work very, very well. Do you anticipate us then moving away from, it certainly sounds like the nasopharyngeal swab, that, that, that's been the gold standard throughout all of this. Um, and the sensitivity and specificity is what I think has been driven, has been driving that type of sampling. Do you see us then, Dave, moving over to potentially a salivary sample, whether it be a buckle washing or a, a saliva test? Do you see that, that changing as we get into the coming weeks and months? I, I, I think the anterior nasal is probably going to be the, the continued standard of practice at this point. However, when you have patients that, that have problems, uh, particularly from an ENT standpoint, uh, where it's very difficult to, to actually do a swab in the nose, then in fact, uh, we have these, uh, these alternatives available. I, I, I doubt very seriously that CDC would recommend moving away from the nasal swabs at this point, but again, an anterior uh, nasal swab is a whole lot easier than where we were a few months ago with NPs. Exactly. So let me ask a question then. So we would view the, the, the washings from the mouth or a salivary specimen as being the exception rather than moving to that as the new standard as it stands now. That is correct. Right. But at the same time, the nasopharyngeal sampling method is 
an exception now, or do you still see that as the predominant method, or, or should most places be doing just the anterior nasal? Uh, I, I think most people have have moved either to the anterior nasal or the, the mid-turbinate. So, uh, uh, again, the discomfort with the nasopharyngeal is a significant problem. So, uh, given the fact that we know that the viral shedding is, is effective uh, further uh, up in, in the nasal passage, again, if the sample is actually placed in, or the swab is placed in, and it's twirled to actually pick up some of, some of the fluids and so forth, been placed in the viral transport media, it's, it's acceptable. That is good to know. I've had about four brain biopsies and I, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so continuing along the lines of, of changes in, in testing, um, you know, we've you know, heard a lot recently about the different mutations that are coming through. Well, first it was UK and South Africa. Now we're uh, maybe ha even having US variants. Um, do the PCR tests pick up on those variants? Does it do anything with, I guess, disrupting the sensitivity and specificity of those tests? Well, I, I, that's a great question. Uh, uh, I've had several people uh, uh, come to me and ask, uh, are our tests still effective? And they are. Uh, the way the, the PCR testing has, has been developed, it's been primarily targeted at, at three of the gene sets, if you will, within this virus. One is the S protein or spike protein. One is, is the nucleic acid. And the other is the, it's called ORF. It's the open reading frame. And this is what's directed at structural genes and the pathogenicity, if you will. Most of the assays, uh, that have been done have looked at the N and ORF1, and so the, the overall testing capability it continues to be effective in being able to pick up those viruses. Now, the problem is is that uh, uh, it may not pick up the variant as a variant. Uh, so we developed the, the TACPATH method, and that picks up both the S or all three S, N, and ORF uh, uh, genes. What uh, what happens though is with some of the mutations, and there are three that we're really following right now. One is the UK variant, and that it's called B117, by the way. And uh, what happens is in in the TAC path assay, what you will see is that, that they will have N positive, ORF positive, and the S will be absent. It's what's called a drop out or drop off. And so when we see that, uh, that's the pattern that is, is most concerning that CDC has provided uh, us to, to actually look at these mutations. There's a second mutation that's occurred in South Africa that's referred to as N501. Uh, and ironically, today, uh, CDC released the thing that there's another another mutation called Brazilian, but it's a bovine variant. And uh, I, I don't, I have not seen anything that implied that it's crossed to humans at this point. So, you know, with the assays that we do within the BAPTA system, within AEL, we pick up all of, all of the the uh, effective coronaviruses that are out there, 
only the TAC pass would pick up whether it's a potential mutation or not. So, if, but all the samples we send, you're saying that if it's a COVID-19 infection, the mutations aren't going to affect whether or not we, we call it a COVID-19 infection. But then your lab is also on the samples that you're running, trying to look to see if the COVID-19 infections have one of these variants using that hack path method. That, that is exactly right. Uh, as a matter of fact, we, we've uh, picked up several of the S dropout uh, uh, mutant uh, variants. And uh, what we're doing at this point in time is any of those that we have with the S dropout uh, uh, COVID positives, we're sending it to, to CDC for them to do whole gene sequencing so that we would know whether or not uh, it is the, the, uh, the B117 or some other type of mutation that, that's out there like that. Um, uh, another thing that we are doing from a surveillance standpoint is we're now sending 100 specimens per week uh, through the University of Tennessee Molecular Laboratory uh, and just that, that, are, that are COVID PCR positive that are not S dropouts that are in fact uh, being sequenced to determine uh, are we seeing the same strain of, of this virus or the same variant uh, throughout our community? The, the primary uh, viral uh, strain that we've seen is B1.2, and almost all of the ones that we have seen thus far have one, been B1.2. So no, no patterns or, or new emerging variations that you've seen since y'all started sending it uh, to UT? We, uh, they're very early in, in their surveillance process, but at this point, no changes. We do have a, a fair number of samples that we picked up the S dropout that are at CDC and we're awaiting uh, their final analysis. Because they haven't said that the UK variant or South African variant is present in our region yet, right? They've just announced it in a few states that I saw. Well, I, it was kind of ironic. Uh, there was a report last week that that uh, there were three cases of the UK variant in, in Chattanooga, but uh, when we actually looked at the raw data, they they reported them based off the S dropout, not off the whole sequencing. So uh, that was that was too early in the, in the process to know that that was the variant. So that was not correct. So, Dave, let, let, me, let, let me. I think that's a key point. Just because it's an S dropout does not mean that it represents the UK mutation. That is correct. Okay. So, if we do see an S dropout in some of the samples that we have, then until it's confirmed as a, by gene sequencing, then we're not in a position to say if this represents a true uh, UK presence of the of the muta mutated virus. Is that correct, then? That you're absolutely correct. That uh, it, it turns out that the coronavirus has a, a fairly uh, significant mutation rate. Many of these are just minor changes with within the virus, and uh, so you know the bottom line is is that we expect these mutations to occur, and and uh, the way this S dropout is detected is based off the primer which is actually kind of the bullet that is shooting at the, at the RNA. And if, if that primer has had some, or the changes in the target have changed just a little bit, 
then the primer or the bullet won't won't fit into into the gun. So the bottom line is is that that may be just a, a minor amino acid change or or a codon change that in fact has no very no impact on what we do from a clinical standpoint, but in fact it was just not detected based off of that primer target. Okay, let, let me, let's go back to just talking about this S or spike protein, and you had hinted to more specific antibody studies that may be coming forward. It, tell me a little bit more about, about that type of antibody study, because I think what we, what we lack right now is a clear understanding of uh, the antibody, your, your body's immunologic response to the virus, and how long do you have a particular antibody coverage? It, what do you see as far as the spike protein study coming forward. And, and on top of that, um, I thought you were mentioning that you may be able to tell in the lab whether or not somebody has antibodies from the vaccine versus antibodies from the infection. Can you comment on that as well? Sure, sure. Uh, there have been two different types of antibody studies, one being uh, the one that we, we had available to us based off the FDA uh, approvals was called the N protein or nuclear capsid protein antibody. And uh, so we, we've been testing that for some period of time. What that shows is whether a person has had an immune response to, to COVID. So we know that they've had exposure and their immune system has responded to it. That doesn't mean that that's a protective antibody. Uh, for the vaccines, what they've done is they they have utilized the spike protein as the the most obvious target that if we develop antibodies to the spike protein, then in fact the virus can attach to the, to cells, and so uh, it really becomes a, a better target that actually prevents them, and it is actually immunity, not just immune reaction. And so uh, what we're moving to next is actually the spike protein antibody. Like I said, within the next couple of days, we will have those assays available. So if you have a patient that uh, you get, a, get the antibody tested and, and, it, and it's N positive, then we know that they've had an immune response. If it's S positive, it's most likely that with S and N both being there, that they've actually had an infection. But if it's S only, we know it's probably vaccine. That's great. So, you know, as, as we wind down the episode, do you have any thoughts on, on where COVID-19 testing is going uh, into the spring and summer months? What are the new things on the horizon? Well, you know, certainly we're going to be continuing to, to look at the, the surveillance for any type of mutations uh, with, uh, and any type of variants that may be occurring. Uh, we'll be very, very careful and, and looking to make sure that testing is appropriate. I, I think one of the, the things besides the, the S uh, protein antibody that will be coming into play very shortly and, and I suspect probably people will want to test for uh, S-protein, uh, particularly in immunocompromised patients or those that have some underlying diseases to make sure that they do have uh, S-antibody. Uh, just, just from a comfort standpoint, if nothing else, uh, that they do have immunity. 
I, I think another one that we're looking at very closely is is the cell-mediated immunity. Uh, we've been working towards uh, being able to do a T-cell response. And um, uh, Oxford in Diagnostics has, a, has an assay that they've developed. And again, based off of individuals that have potentially immunocompromised situations, the cell-mediated testing may be something in the future that, that we'll be able to do very effectively. No, that's a good point. And, you know, look forward to, to hearing that. Uh, it's, you know, it makes perfect sense if somebody that's immunocompromised, you'd want to check to make sure that they had immunity. And I know we're closing out. You know, any any closing comments for the medical staff or, or audience that you want to leave, Dr. Smalley? Well, I, I, again, I know this has been a uh, unbelievable year. Uh, uh, gosh, I, I, I just had the opportunity to publish a paper on the changes in the laboratory operations during the pandemic. And, you know, the laboratory, has, my staff have been just unbelievable heroes in, in doing testing 24-7. We really appreciate the, the partnership with the, with the Baptist system. Uh, we've had many, many conversations with, with the, the medical staff uh, throughout the Baptist system, and uh, we, we really appreciate all the efforts that they've gone through in, in working with us to, to deal with this pandemic. Well, well thank you. And, and we're definitely lucky to, to have James Grantham, who I know you've worked with multiple times, multiple times a day probably over the last uh, 10 or 11 months. Uh, to help us get up and running with uh, cutting edge testing that we're doing. So thank you. And, and thank you to um, all the medical staff that are listening to Right Care at Baptist. Um, please remember to follow that CME link and we'll talk to you again shortly.